1: Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton finance professor, Jeremy Siegel, we tackle market trends every week on Wharton Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 111. Our guest consists of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs
0: created rather
1: than destroyed. Nick Rusinoff, expert on currency research. That's what you see for those safe haven currencies. Is hedging the FX risk is actually exposing you to more risk. Or even the head of the Digital India Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion
2: that we have done over the last couple of years.
1: Enjoy this week's show. Welcome back to Behind the Markets here in Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, joined by Lee Chen Ren. And for this half hour, we have Ray Ball, who's the Sydney Davidson Distinguished Service Professor of Accounting the University of Chicago's Booth School of Business. Mouthful there, Ray. And uh, you're being honored for the conference award for the 2019 Jacobs Levy Prize for Quantitative Financial Innovation with a paper that was one of the very first or maybe the first paper to focus on accounting data tied to stock prices back in 19... 68. Well, congratulations on the award.
0: Thank you very much.
1: Maybe tell us, how did you get focused on that kind of study? What was the the research landscape like there back, back at the time when you were working on it?
0: The research, uh, research landscape was pretty much barren landscape at the time. <laughs> uh, uh, we were young, uh, and the generation of scholars before us had uh, basically not looked at much data systematically. They had tended to look at, data uh, selectively, they looked at cases that supported their points of view uh, and they hadn't looked at data systematically and they had come to the conclusion that accounting numbers are useless, (laughs) Uh, they're totally meaningless. Um, uh, The argument was that um, uh, accounting methods for measuring inventory are different than accounting methods for measuring uh, things like um, marketable securities. And so when you aggregate these numbers up to get a balance sheet number, you're aggregating unlike things, apples and oranges, and the, the sum is meaningless. Uh, we arrived at Chicago, Phil Brown and I uh, we were young, as I said, uh, and the environment there for research was just electric. The, the idea was everything's up for challenge. <laughs> you challenge everything with data or, or opposing ideas. And there was also um, a very strong belief that the institutional structure around us, our economy is run in a way which relentlessly tries to do things more and more efficiently over time, Uh, that uh, inefficient ways of doing things don't survive. And so we thought, well, these ideas are really inconsistent. Uh, If there's this relentless pressure of the institutional structure to, to do things better and better over time, But the accountants have still got it wrong. It's still meaningless after millennia. (laughs) This doesn't seem to fit very well. So we thought we'd devise a test. Um, And the test was to say, okay, if this stuff is meaningless, then people will not find it useful in their investment decisions. And so when we look at the relationship between accounting numbers and and stock returns, changes in share price, there should be no relationship. But we predicted there would be one. and sure enough, the data came up to <laughs> to work pretty well, and that's the uh, th- as they say uh, that was history, right? Yeah.
2: Fifty years ago. So uh, in your original paper, you used CompuState data, which we are still using nowadays, and uh, CRISPR data from University of Chicago. Um, and the third part of the data was uh, announcement dates from Wall Street Journal. And even from today's point of view, there's no data on that. Do you really you know, collect by hand of all those announcement dates?
0: Well, uh, one of the reasons I still... Um, one of the reasons I, I need glasses is that I spent months looking at microfish <laughs> on a microfish reader in you know, a technology before anything was digital. Uh, and it was very, very hard to Th- read. That's, uh, that's
2: today's <laughs> definition of alternative data.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it took a long time. Um, the advantage was that we, uh, or the disadvantage obviously is, is how much time it took. Uh, the advantage was that we knew our data. We knew it very well. Uh, And so when we found a Wall Street Journal announcement that didn't seem to be the right date, we were able to check whether or not there was another announcement that preceded it uh, to get it right. Uh, Even on the CRSP, CRSP is the Center for Research and Security Prices at Chicago, and they put together the first ever data file, I think, of in finance, uh, computerized data file in history. And they had uh, rates of return on, on shares going back to 1926. Uh, and so we even actually looked at their data, month every single observation. We we gave them about a dozen corrections that they had. <laughs> they should pay you. <laughs> so that, that was the advantage of of uh, in you know the the olden days. <laughs> you didn't have a whole lot of mm-hmm. data, and you could get to know the data very well. Um, in the modern world, people have hundreds of thousands of observations. In some studies, millions of observations to look at. And the researchers just can't possibly look at them one by one. Um, and so they, they don't get to know their data as well. But so, yes, uh, it took a lot of time, but it, it was worth it.
1: So, so that work was really the foundational for a lot of this accounting work that's sort of since followed. What would you say has been your sort of most important lines of work following that first paper? Well, um, trying to summarize here's what i'm most proud of and most excited about
0: the one i'm most proud of is a paper that i wrote very soon after the original ball brown paper it took a while to get it published uh on what was called anomalies what i termed anomalies I, i've been reading for a research class i was teaching a book by a man called thomas kuhn on the uh, logic of, of scientific revolutions uh, and he had introduced this term anomaly. An anomaly is where uh, there is a result that is not consistent with your theory. And he points out that every single theory has had and every single theory will have anomalies. Why? We aren't gods. We don't have a perfect theory. Okay. Um, and so no theory perfectly fits the data. Uh, and so um, I, I had, in our original 68 paper, we had this anomaly for what was called the efficient markets hypothesis. The efficient markets hypothesis said that when an observation comes out, when a company announces its earnings, the price adjustment should, should be immediate, right? Uh, that's, that's the argument, efficient markets. And it works pretty well as a hypothesis, but it has its anomalies. And in the original 68 paper we had pointed out that after a firm increases, uh, announces an increase in its earnings, yes, the prices move up around when you announce it, but then they keep moving after. For more months, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah <laughs> for quite a while. Yeah. And likewise with decreases. You announce a decrease in earnings and the prices trended down after. Um, and I started to think about it a lot. And I noticed there were some other studies that followed up from us that had similar results. And so I wrote a paper called Anomalies in the Relationship Between the Accounting Numbers and Stock Returns. And... It, uh, introduced the term anom- anomalies to the literature. There Now is there's a paper at today's conference called On the Anomaly Zoo. There are people who have reported up to hundreds, 500. Three, yeah. Hundreds
1: and hundreds of anomalies. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Uh, the pre- previous two guests, one was on the transaction cost of anomalies, one yeah. was on the timing of how yeah. Yeah, everybody's focused on that.
0: Yeah, so I'm proud of the paper very much, but I must say I, I apologize for the <laughs> zoo that has, re- that has come that's after great. it. I don't take any responsibility for other people's use of the word anomaly. <laughs> but, uh, so, yeah, that's uh, that was back in 1970. It took a while to get it published. People wouldn't believe it. Uh, but since uh, more recently I've been coming back and looking at different measures of a company's profitability uh, and looking at what's called operating profitability uh, and gross profitability as distinct from the firm's bottom-line earnings. Uh, The difference between them is operating profitability doesn't have in it a number of items that are in the bottom of the firm's income statement that don't tell tell you anything about the future. They're just once-off things that they they don't have any predictive power in them. Uh, So I've been working on that. Uh, Given
1: how much you worked on earnings, do you think earnings are more predictable than stock prices? And do you have models that that you follow for predicting earnings?
0: I, I think earnings, when you scale them by a share price and get what's called earnings yield, if you get the right earnings number, if you don't have some of this idiosyncratic stuff I was talking about in the bottom of an income statement, you get the right earnings number, scale it by the share price. It shares a lot in common with the return that investors expect from earnings, yep. from, from investing, I should say. Uh, and yeah, I, That's, that's th- something that I think the data show. They're still there, by the way. They're, our results from 50 years ago, published 50 years ago, are still in the data. They're still there.
1: We're talking with Ray Ball, professor at the University of Chicago, winning an award for uh, for innovation in in quant financial research here at the Jacobs Levy Center. That's something I've worked with Professor Siegel. He spent time at the University of Chicago. He often talks about the earnings yield as his predictor for the stock market's long-term real return. It says you you take the Twenty PE ratio on the S and P, you get a five percent earnings yield. Mm-hmm. That's your basic for the whole economy. Now, now it's interesting. I haven't talked with him. That he thinks about the value sorting of the markets. Mm-hmm. I don't know about the you know predicting the individual stocks, but that's an interesting.
0: Yeah, at the are we online. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's it's obviously related. I mean, yeah. this uh, work. Uh, he got the Nobel Prize for this on asset bubbles. Uh, takes that same sort of metric. He says, look, there are periods in which if you take the average firm's earnings compared to its price, it tells you something about the economy as a whole. Uh, So Robert Schiller, his pioneering work is on that. Um, People differ in whether they they think that uh, the market gets these things right or whether it gets them wrong, that's a secondary issue. But it turns out that the earnings number scale by price is a quite important signal variable in the economy.
2: Um, follow up on that, you also have a paper which talk about return earnings, uh, is this actually I, I wouldn't characterize it as more important, but can you also illustrate it about, you know, maybe, maybe like a return to earnings as a as an item uh, is probably better than uh, book, book price? Yes,
0: yeah, well, it, there's a very, very old um, view in practice, in investment practice, um, and among managers and among academics that the ratio of the book value of the equity of a firm, something on its balance sheet, which is the difference between the assets and liabilities of a company on a balance sheet is the shareholder's equity in the company. So the book value of the equity compared to the market value of that same equity, there's a long-standing view that that tells you something about whether the stock is mispriced or not. Um, The argument typically is that the book value has got some measure of fundamentals, what's really going on in the company, and the share market gets it wrong. And if that ratio gets out of line or not, the book value to market value, then that tells you whether the price is too high or too low. That's um, the
1: famous famous former French University of Chicago <laughs> way right. of doing value. Yep, absolutely. Price to book.
0: Absolutely. And if you go back to Graham and Dodd, uh, the famous uh, uh, investors, um, uh, the people of whom Warren Buffett is a disciple, okay. Um, if you go back and read their books from the 20s and 30s, they they uh, say, uh, no, they don't believe that book value is a measure of fundamentals. They think that's a big mistake. Uh, and they say uh, to decide whether a firm is undervalued or not, what you should do is get some sort of average earnings numbers, an num- uh, earnings number that that averages out idiosyncratic year-to-year effects. Some of those year-to-year effects are due to accounting issues that smooth out over time, but you know they're they're in individual years. And some of the idiosyncratic things are just business things, like you have a good year or a bad year. Okay? Uh-huh. And so Graeme and, um, and Dodd uh, long ago said the ratio of book mar- to market doesn't tell you much. The ratio of some sort of normal earnings number to to um, market does. Okay, And so um, what we found is the results line up with that. Um, book, to m- book values on a company's balance sheet have two major components. One is the amount of money that stockholders have contributed contributed to the firm, net of the amount that's been sent back to them by stock repurchases. So it's contributed capital. The other component is retained earnings. If a company makes some earnings and doesn't pay it out as dividends, the difference goes onto the balance sheet as retained earnings. It turns out that all of the ability of book-to-market to predict future stock returns is due to the retained earnings-to-market component. The ca- contributed capital component has no explanatory power whatsoever, none. Uh, and so it links to the original ball Brown paper in a very re- interesting way in the sense that what it says uh, is that the anomaly that we reported there, that is, that changes in earnings predict stock returns, okay really is what probably underpins the book-to-market results they 're very structurally related things
2: yeah that's it's very interesting because really it relates back to your first uh, paper mm-hmm. on, on this uh, along mm-hmm. this uh, academic literature
0: yeah. yeah so for me it 's been like a return trip uh, <laughs> we, we, do, we, we did a lot of stuff fifty years ago, uh, yeah. then I wandered off and did some other things. Uh, uh, in the past decade, have come back to to yeah. revisiting the same issues.
2: Um, if I may ask uh, another question, which um, there's a famous paper by uh, Professor Jonathan Burke on the critique of the size premium or size anomaly, however you call it. I I do want to understand a little bit the size premium, which has not uh, done well in the last you know uh, fifteen to ten years. Like, what's your general view uh, of the size premium? Is it uh, related to accounting statements, uh, or is it related to maybe more the macro uh, risk, a systematic macro risk, which I, I know you also have researched it very uh, broadly.
0: Right, right. I'm not too sure I can nail the size premium <laughs> result. Um, the reason being that small stocks are so different than large stocks in many, many dimensions. Um, one of them is obviously as companies, they're smaller, they're subject to different risks. Many of them are... Uh, have higher operating leverage in the in the sense that, given the level of their fixed costs, they don't have as high a revenue, so they have they're more exposed to variation in their revenues because they're they're, they're smaller. Um, many of them don't have as great an access to the capital markets, so they have more liquidity issues. Their shares in the market are less liquidly liquidly traded. They have you know, larger spreads. Um, Um, there's a whole bunch of literature on limited attention that says that small stocks are mispriced because they uh, escape the attention of the average investor. There's so much stuff going on with small stocks. Uh, uh, I think it's going to take a while for people to sort out what's what's really involved. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, give the literature time. It'll get sorted out, (laughs) I believe.
1: I I believe you're going to present a little bit later today on... You know, there's all this questions in the in the in research anywhere. Does the do things replicate? And I think you're working on up updating 50 years later Ball and Brown's original work and replicating it in the U.S. and across the world. Did your original work replicate after you published that? And how did the results change?
0: Well, replication to start off with is a very very important property. It's probably the gold standard of scientific research. Do your results replicate? Um, it came to the attention of scholars worldwide um, by two, two events. Um, one is there was a, a study uh, done of uh, sociology and psychology in which um, 100 well-received papers were then farmed out to independent groups around the world to, to replicate. Uh, and I think it was 36 of the 100 replicated, <laughs> and almost two-thirds did not. Um, and there's a scientific standard that says well when you publish something there has to be only a 5% chance or less that it's just due to chance and so if the results in these studies were right <laughs> 95 out of the 100 should have replicated and I think it was 36 that, that did um, and so that, that focused attention to what are the sources underlying that, by the way the second event uh, was as it was in medical science so there's a lot of Results that show that drug trials that were submitted uh, for regulatory approval uh, are not as highly likely to replicate as one would like. Okay? Uh, and so, uh, yeah, the pleasing thing is we were commissioned by a general. Phil Brown and I both grew up in Australia and, and uh, I'm now working in Chicago, but Phil is working in, 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 in Australia still. And we were commissioned by the the Pacific uh, Basin Finance Journal, uh, sort of local journal, uh, to replicate the study 50 years later uh, in two dimensions. One is time. Is it still there? Secondly, in other countries, with an emphasis upon the Pacific Basin countries like Malaysia, Japan, okay, and so forth. And, uh, yeah, it was remarkable uh, that the results really do replicate uh, very, very well. I think the only major differences are that because uh, information processing costs are much lower, companies announce their earnings earlier than they used to. Um, uh, but uh, pretty much everything replicated very well.
2: Um. So I'm going to ask you a question. That after 50 years of research of anomalies, how do you you know invest yourself? So because people are, it's not an advice, but you know from your research, like how do you think about your own portfolios?
0: <laughs> so
1: just buy Vanguard beta, or do we try to outperform with, <laughs> with some of the factors? Yes.
0: <laughs> yes, yeah, so I do. I eat my own cooking, right? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, well, first of all, you might have realized from the fact that uh, it's 50 years since or 51 years now since we published that paper and maybe 53 years since we did the work that I'm not young. <laughs> and, and as you get uh, into retirement, get older, you have to become more conservative, right? You don't want to put your your investments at risk and so on. Uh, my wife and I d- uh, discuss at great length uh, what we're going to do in terms of our investments and I've been persuaded quite for, for quite a while to actually be very conservative. <laughs> and so. Uh, the first thing is that we have a lot of money in debt, right? In <laughs> fixed interest securities rather than, than yeah. stocks. Secondly, um, uh, I'm, I'm so impressed by the way share markets work. There are these anomalies, I understand, but they work incredibly well. Um, that the only time in which we invest in shares is when we have a personal reason to invest in that share. Um, and so our portfolio <laughs> looks very, very. Conservative. Yeah, I should say, however, for the last 14 years, I've been on the board of a mutual fund suite, the Harbor Funds. And so a lot of what I've learned from how the market operates is informed how they invest. Well, Ray, this has been a great conversation.
1: Congrats again on your award. Thank you so much for joining us on the program today. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit WisdomTree.com. I'm a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor of WisdomTree. Our discussion is not tied to the offer of some investment products, and the views of our guests are their own and not those of WisdomTree's affiliates.